0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Prelude to Positivity. This is the first episode of Season 2. My name is Tommy Jirasi. My guest today is returning. He was a guest on Season 1, and we had so much fun. Joseph Finity, who is a host, a personality, a pop culture enthusiast, and he has a very timely 9-11 project that's coming out. So we want to discuss all that with Joseph. Joseph, how are you?
1: Well, I'm great, and I'm just thrilled that I get to be your Season debut i i first off the fact that you invited me back yay (laughs) secondly on a season debut show this is so cool i mean we gotta we gotta celebrate this is so awesome we're here
0: exactly i feel like i should do like my oprah voice like welcome to season two <laughs>
1: <laughs> as long so as, as we all get cars as long as we <laughs> all get cars i think i can handle that
0: everyone's gonna get a, a staple gun or something I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> a staple gun well
1: you. you know i reached out to you because i thought Okay, here we are. At First off, I had such a good time, first time around on Prelude to Positivity with you. And I thought, okay, you're the one person who has a good, positive... Hello, Prelude to Positivity. You have a good, positive attitude. So I can come on and talk to you about a topic that is sad and we can still get through it and feel good about it because it's the Tommy Show. So I thought, let (laughs) me talk to you about this because I know that that we can get through it in positive ways.
0: But I wanna backtrack just a little bit for people who might not be familiar with you because there might be one or two that aren't familiar. I was gonna say,
1: (laughs) kick them out, get them out of here.
0: Just remind us about like how Joseph Finney got started and, and what your origins were.
1: You no, know, I was looking at my bio as you asked. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a freelance journalist, but I really do believe that I would be working full-time in one of america's many newsrooms if i was just a little more serious because i like to have too much fun to handle news every single day (laughs) but that kind of sums me up in a nutshell a journalist at heart but a little too silly for the day to day got my start uh at a radio station back around the time that you and i are about to talk about 20 years ago got my start at a local radio station in my hometown outside of austin texas and uh, since then, I've been bouncing in and out of newsrooms coast to coast. I have been working freelance for the last several years. Uh, Rolling Stone has published some of my stuff, Out Magazine, a few others. The most success I've found and the most fun I've had and the most meaningful experiences or stories have always been ones that I have not found in the newsroom, but ones that I've found uh, through independent projects, which is one I know that, that we're going to talk about.
0: That sounds, but it sounds to me like you could do a parody of news, maybe.
1: Do you remember when The Onion would have The Onion News Network? I haven't seen it lately, but did you ever watch The Onion News Network? Did you ever see any of those clips?
0: I've never seen the clips, but I know people would post from somewhere onto Instagram. Uh, yeah. Oh, God, it was so
1: hilarious. I have not seen it in a long time, but I remember that The Onion several years ago, they did these great, so well-produced and great actors on there as anchors. Oh, it was the best news parody ever. <laughs> I think a parody would be would be best for me. But then every now and then I get into these real serious stories. As, as you know, I have to sit down and take things seriously, which is hard for me, but necessary.
0: Yeah, and the new project is basically involves stories from people who, were, who experienced or affected by 9-11 20 years ago. Do you remember where you were on that day and how you felt that day?
1: the new project is the old project. 9-11, I remember very clearly that, and it's so interesting to me to hear everyone's story where they were on 9-11, what they were doing, what happened in their lives, because it doesn't matter if you were in New York or DC or Pennsylvania or Boston or San Francisco. It's so interesting to me to hear everyone has a different a different, just a little bit of a different story about how they heard about it, what they first thought, how they reacted. I know it was, and probably forever will be, the biggest news day of my life. And I say that as a, you know, private citizen as just an individual. I just remember it was a real scary day. I was a sophomore in high school. And at my high school in Texas, outside Austin, 8.46 a.m. Eastern Time, that is 7.46 a.m. Central Time, we were just getting into class, just getting into school as news of the North Tower uh, had been hit. So I remember thinking, only being on this planet for 15, 16 years, It felt to me like the end of the world. It really felt like, okay, nothing is safe. And more memorable to me as we sat in the classroom and as we were watching this unfold on TV, what I noticed most was, one, it wasn't just the drama unfolding on TV. It was, I saw the adults around me, the teachers, the administrators. I saw things were different this time, even though we were almost 2,000 miles away from where it seemed that this was unfolding, there was an energy in the air that felt like nothing I've felt since. And it was a feeling that, oh no, maybe we're not that safe. And by we, I also mean I. <laughs> maybe I'm not that safe. And it was a defining moment, even though it turns out I was not anywhere near, quote unquote, ground zero. But when you are 15, 16 years old and you see a plane fly into the pentagon and you know that the pentagon's job is to defend and you go oh my god so i guess that's the 9-11 generation right you you grow up in the middle of that and you go okay everything's changed on this day and i don't quite feel safe
0: yeah and there was a moment where i think they thought that every major city was going to be hit right so they thought it might be a bigger plan that they had
1: that was the thing that i think was most scary is that like things were unfolding at a fast pace, and you didn't know when the next shoe was gonna drop or what it was gonna be.
0: Yeah, and even for days after, I think it was still that way, where we, the uncertainty of what, who else is out there,
1: and still to this day, you know, there there are um, security precautions that go up on the date, September 11th, for fear of additional attacks. And, and so going back to where I was that day, I was just in a state of looking around. I was always uh, a very curious kid, and I was always, um, with all due respect to my fellow classmates, I felt like... Me and a few others who were always maybe a little more mindful of of the news and what was going on. I was a news junkie as a kid, right? So I understood very clearly what was going on. And what was going on is, one, no one knew what was going on. And two, nothing felt safe. That's kind of where I was as things unfolded in 2001.
0: Then the story behind the project now. This happened pretty soon after. You did it the same year?
1: 2001. I'm I'm in small town Texas outside Austin, and I'm like, what am I gonna do? Like this is a horrible national tragedy. What am I gonna do? And I'm looking around, and there are people donating. They're volunteering their time. They're donating money. They're donating things. They're they're rebuilding, cleaning up, helping. Again, I'm a kid a thousand miles away, and I'm thinking, what am I gonna do? What do I have to? offer or contribute or how can I assist? How can I help? Something I still think to this day as a grown-up, I'm like, okay, what can I do? How can I help? What is missing here? What was missing for me was, one, I knew that donating blood or donating time wasn't going to cut it for me. Donating money, I was 16, I didn't have any money. So I'm like, wh- where do I fit into this in, in terms of where can I help? Or as we say these days, how can I be of service? Like, what can I do? What was missing was the kids, the youth. I'm sitting at home as a kid watching CNN and then Headline News and then all the others and I'm going, these are adults talking to other adults. That's all it was. The reporters and anchors were adults, and they were interviewing other adults. And I thought, well, where are the kids? Where's the youth of America? Where are the kids that were near the Twin Towers on September 11, 2001? Where are they? I got to talking with my school district, and I said, we've got to do something. We need to go find the voice of America's youth. We need to go hear their firsthand stories. I eventually was able to get my school to agree to me doing an independent study and heading to New York City and going to Stuyvesant High School. And this occurred, you asked earlier, when it happened. This all happened within the first six months of 9-11. So I ended up in Stuyvesant High School in Lower Manhattan, as you know. For those outside of New York City or who aren't familiar with the story, this school is essentially, as one documentary put it, in the shadows of the Twin Towers. just blocks away from the world trade center that's where i went and i met up with kids my age so it was a 16 year old talking to other 15 and 16 year olds and really getting a much better sense of kind of how how is this impacting someone like me and at the time i was a kid so i wanted to know how is this impacting the kids so i went home to texas with hours of footage of these interviews I came home with all these great interviews did it as a school project that's what it was it was quite well done so well done in fact that it later became a documentary film and that was that that was 2001 2002 life goes on right now here we are at the 20 year marker i've dug in to this footage and I found clips that were not used originally. And the goal now with 911tapes.org is to get these old interviews out there and heard.
0: And did you fly from Texas to New York and you felt like it was okay to fly at that point?
1: It was a weird, let me tell you, it was a weird time to fly, as anyone can remember. It was a very strange time to fly in 01 and 02. No, I didn't feel safe flying. Uh, That soon after 9-11, nothing felt felt all that comfortable after 9-11. And I'm not just talking about the weeks, but months, right?
0: And you and I have also talked about the similarities between 9-11 and COVID.
1: Right, yeah.
0: How we kind of, it's the same thing where we felt unsafe. We also woke up to the idea that, as Americans, we do have privilege that normally we don't deal with that stuff. That's not a day-to-day thing. It's not a weekly thing for us. It's it's events that happened that devastated us, but there are countries that live like this all the time. And we also get this feeling of being kind of just totally invincible as Americans at some points. And we realize we were vulnerable in both of these situations. Do you think that most people correlate these two things or do you think you and i are the only ones that think like
1: well you know it's interesting you said 20 years ago you made some extra money because you picked extra hours because certain people couldn't be at work that kind of sounds like now doesn't it
0: it affected the same things because we changed the security of travel the last time and this time we changed the health
1: of travel i i remember like you know when it was Avis or Hertz or one of the rental car companies last year at the beginning of all of this tell me they came out with something called Avis Clean and I was like oh my god this is serious <laughs> they they came out with the whole branding of of um or maybe it was Alamo Rental or whatever it was like whatever the company's name was clean and then I go to American Airlines website and they have the Lysol logo uh near their safety and I'm like oh my god things have forever changed and I was just on a flight by the way here we are in 2021. It's still a a changed world, and anyone listening to this, if they're truly listening, I don't think they're going to take away that you or I are uh, are comparing 911 uh, to COVID 19. But I do think that there are several similarities because a major event that impacts a lot of people is a major event that impacts a lot of people. I and also,
0: learn because we learn so much from each of these things.
1: Oh, I know. And and who knows, by the time you and I listen to this podcast another year later, if even some of the things were saying how weird it might sound or how incorrect it could be. Because I remember when COVID-19 first became, in, became a known issue in the United States. And I remember when I'm out here in California, and I remember when our governor essentially put us on, I guess, what may be referred to as a lockdown. I don't know if that's entirely accurate, but that's kind of a stay at home order essentially our mayor simultaneously put us on a stay at home order um and and do you remember I don't know if you did this but we were wiping down all of our surfaces which is the something we trade. should right but but we were obsessively wiping down surfaces and not like it's like okay let me let me order food and then the guy would drop it off at the door no contact and then um wipe it down then leave it out for a minute and then because we didn't know anything we didn't know that
0: from the container came into a container that was already in your house. Right. If I touch it again, it's gonna so I would dump it and then wash my hands and then eat out of the new container.
1: But we didn't know any better, right? We only knew what we thought we knew and at that time we we, we didn't know how how much of this was transmitted with surface-to-surface contact. It reminds me, in a lot of ways, 20 years ago when we didn't know where the next attack was coming from, where the next, or or if it was safe to do this or safe to do that, right? We just didn't know. And so I think it brings us to our knees, these events, these moments in our our history and in our lives. It just, it can rock you.
0: Like now we have these variants that are coming out every seems like every week we have a new one. This I heard this third one now. So we just don't know.
1: You just don't know. And and you've got to go with that that saying that is so hard to go with. At least it's always difficult for me. But, you know, live every day like it's your last. <laughs> I mean, I, I can't do that. I wish I could. I'm not very good at that. I'm such a long-term thinker a lot of the time, but such a planner. And so now I'll deal with that later. But uh, between... to where we are today with whatever this COVID-19 and beyond thing is that's impacting our day-to-day and bringing people we know and love to early deaths. You know, sounds familiar. Sounds like 20 years ago when there was something that was unwelcome and unfamiliar. I've grown up in a world that is very clearly not safe, and how to handle that and how to react to that. Well, that's why I show up to you know podcasts like prelude to positivity to try and figure out how do we cope with and how do we deal with these emotions even two decades later?
0: Speaking of similarities and just going back to the project for a minute, we always say that people have this basic need to be seen and heard and know that they matter. So after this horrific thing happened and you went to go talk to these people, did you find that even after this tragedy that they still had that same basic need, or maybe even more so, because of what they had been through, what they had witnessed, that they wanted to be seen, heard, and validated even more so.
1: That's absolutely right. I couldn't put it better myself. Um, It was like, in some ways, even though they were busy high school kids I was talking to on their lunch period, by the way, so, you know, it's not like they wanted to talk to some stranger with a microphone and a camera, but... There was a sense that, oh, no one's asked. No one's asked. Thank you for asking. Thank you for asking. Keep in mind, the whole reason I set out to do this was because I knew, Tommy, that there was no way that me, as a teenager, a thousand miles away, um, was going to make a difference. I just did not feel like I could make a difference. And once I got there, to New York City, and turned on the microphone and talked to these kids who were my age at the time and no surprise are my age now um you 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 felt a sense of relief um kind of wash over as these kids were able to finally tell their story um you got the sense that maybe no one has checked in with them in the way that certainly in the way that we check in with kids and others in our life now, it seems to be we check in too much sometimes. But um, this is 20 years ago, I can't believe that. And it seemed like people were making decisions and not really checking in, or at least that's the sense I got from these 911tapes.org interviews at Stuyvesant High School. I got the sense that it was like, you know, they sent us back to school uh, relatively quickly, one kid told me. And uh, they didn't really ask us what we wanted. They just sent us back. And we're concerned and worried about the air quality, which I know is something you can probably speak to living in New York City uh, at that time. Um, the, the goal of this project was to give the youth of America, and in particular, the youth of New York City, a voice. I did that, and I was proud of it. Then time marched on. And the, the reality is I was doing something that I had no idea I was doing. I really was not thinking that I was going to have documented for the public record first-hand accounts from New York City, from rare interviews. These kids, people were not interviewing kids, I was. To have these young people tell me their first-hand accounts, again, it was just a school project. So now here we are, two decades later, giving these tapes some life, giving these kids uh, some amplification, if you will, has been really, um, it's just felt good to know that the original goal is still being accomplished two decades later, giving young people a voice.
0: When all this was happening, and even now, who have been some of your mentors that actually like encouraged you in your head, let's say, because maybe you have mentors that you might not have even met, but that encouraged you to do things like this, even back then?
1: I got to give a lot of credit to... My family, my mom. Now it sounds like a thank you speech, doesn't it? But but really, those were the. I mean, it was. There were a lot of real life, firsthand kind of people in, in my life pushing me to um to complete this and do this and do it well. And uh, except for the the front desk lady at my high school, um, because I remember. I said, "What do I have to press for an outside line? I don't know if they do this anymore, but you know, you have to press 9 for an outside line or something." And she said, "Oh, well, you have to press a different number if it's long distance." And I said, "Yeah, I'm calling a 212 number." And she said, "You're calling New York? What? You can't call New York. What are you doing? Why are you calling New York?" And I said, <laughs> 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 "Of course, back then I I not much has changed with me. I told her, I said, "Don't worry about it." I said, "I'm setting up some interviews in New York. It's about this project. Don't even worry about it." She's like, "No, students can't call long distance." And uh, story of my life, but um, so so with the exception of her, um, uh, who who tried to stop me from calling long distance to New York City, um, I, I would say there th- there were teachers that I worked with. The principal of my high school was so supportive. The the technologist, the primary teacher, who kind of co-sponsored this project who I still speak with today she was so she was so influential because honestly Tommy if this had not happened uh, and I'm not talking about the events of 9-11 but I'm talking about how I handled them how I reacted to them um, how I turned something really horrible and devastating into something that we could um, maybe talk about in a way that we hadn't before or hear from people who who were in the back of the auditorium that media wasn't talking to, could speak to these young people, give them a voice. I was allowed to do this by my mentors and by my parents and by my teachers and administrators at my school. And if I hadn't been allowed to do that, I don't know, if I had not been encouraged, allowed and encouraged to do that, I don't know if I would have accomplished some of the few accomplishments I've actually made in my life since that time those things kind of keep you going in life and and to this day whether it's been you know working at CBS or living in LA from small-town Texas or being heard on Sirius XM or published in Rolling Stone or whatever else that I think is a highlight in my life professionally (laughs) I don't know how to tell you this but it's the high school project from 2001 and 2002 that I'm most proud of and I never thought I'd say that but that it's the truth here I am you know Tommy you didn't know me a couple of years ago but we're sitting here talking about my project from 19 years ago so the the people in my head were the people in my life and I have them to think because they motivated and encouraged me to follow a good idea
0: so would you say your mentors are also your source of inspiration or do you have other sources of inspiration that keep you that have kept you motivated in the direction that you're going
1: i would say both but i would say that i would say my source of inspiration is um not just other people kind of showing me the way but other people in my life who've told me that i can go my own way and have either given me permission or moved out of my way to inspire me to kind of just go find myself and part of doing this interview with these kids you know as a kid It was not easy. It was at times a bit scary. I'm talking about the entire project, right? So I'm talking about traveling on that plane six months after 9-11, walking up to strangers, talking to strangers, getting this edited, getting it on the local news, getting all this going and completing a really huge project in a really little town. It was not easy, but it was necessary. And it was one of my first lessons of knowing maybe a little bit about your calling, knowing your strength, trying to identify what a strength is and trying to figure out how you can contribute and trying to walk away from a situation or move on move on to the next chapter and know that you've done your best like okay I didn't have any money to do, donate at the time to first responders I didn't have any I, I didn't have a way to donate blood I didn't uh, I couldn't donate time I was over here I could but okay great what can you do? And I figured out that fall and that's following spring in 2002, what I could do.
0: It sounds like all of that too takes a lot of confidence, which is like another theme for this season two that I'm going to explore with people. So I wanted to ask you, how do you find the confidence to do these things? Like ask the pilot to go into the cockpit, ask, <laughs> you know the photo, right. ask your principal or guidance counselors or whoever you had to ask at the school, if you could even do this project and fly to New York, like where do you find the confidence to do that?
1: I don't know. And I honestly don't know if that question is even applicable to me all the time, because what comes off as confidence, what I tell myself is confidence and being confident is it's not always that, you know what I mean? And not to get too complex or too deep on the debut of season two, maybe this is part two of season two, but um, sometimes you just have to be confident in a situation or in a decision, even just a little bit confident and then hope that other things flow into confidence. Does that make sense? So If I walk into a situation and I'm like, okay, I'm not confident, but I'm confident in doing the right thing. I'm confident in knowing I'm doing the right thing. So for example, 911tapes.org the stuyvesant tapes the the interviews i did i was not confident with every single step in that process tommy pre-production getting permission flying out there to new york but i was 100 percent confident in the decision that i made that someone had to get out there and tell the story of the kids who were impacted by 9-11, right? So I knew that that was going to happen. Maybe the answer to where my confidence comes from, if I see that something out there in this world needs to get done or that something needs to happen a certain way, I just kind of go into... I don't know, maybe it's autopilot, um, but I just have to turn off the whole, well, Joseph, how are you feeling about this? This whole checking in with yourself all the time, I'm not I'm not a huge fan of that. <laughs> and some of my friends or colleagues might say, oh, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Um, but if I were to check in with myself all the time, what I'd learn is I'm not as confident as I think. Um, and... I could actually probably gain a little more confidence, believe it or not. However, the decisions I make in my life, if I'm 100% confident about the decisions, I don't ask questions. You know, I, I know, okay, Joseph, you're gonna be the one to help this play out. You're gonna be the one who's gonna have to go up there and gonna have to ask the judge for this or ask the authority figure for this or request special permission for this or whatever. It's not—is there confidence or not? It's there's confidence in my decision to do it, and now I look around and I'm like, well, I guess I'm gonna be the one to do it. Does that make sense?
0: Sounds <laughs> like you're saying basically that you don't have to be confident all the time. Yeah, yeah, it. yeah. It's not something that you need to, and you—we can't say that we're not confident people at all. We can right. just say we're not in this area or that area, or but we—you have everyone has confidence in some respect or some aspect.
1: I have things that are not my strength, you know, uh, I'm not good at this. I'm not good at that. But if I'm confident in A or B needs to get done, then that's the confidence I need. So it's not necessarily always self-confidence. My self-confidence, I think, often comes from the confidence I have in general about, okay, this is what needs to happen. Again, the the, the 9-11 interviews at Stuyvesant High School, like I know in my heart that those needed to happen and I saw with my eyes that it wasn't happening. And so because I was 100% confident that it needed to happen, it didn't matter if I was confident as an individual or even competent, honestly, as an individual in terms of getting it done at that time in my life, because I was confident in my decision to get it done. So I think confidence is something that's Mm, tricky. And, uh, and it just takes people like you and I to be honest and say, I'm not always confident. (laughs) Helps other people realize, okay, it's okay not to be confident all the time. Confidence is overrated, right?
0: Yeah, but you can do things with confidence, even though you're not always confident. So that's the, the key, I think that people need to figure out.
1: Like, it's like working out, right? If you want a muscle to be strong, you can't just, like, make it strong uh, one summer in the gym. Not that I would know, but... I mean, you tell me. You work out, Tommy. But you can't just, like, make it strong. Okay, I have a six-pack. Now what am I going to do? You have to keep working at it. And that's what I do with my confidence. I'm happy. I'm confident with that answer.
0: (laughs) What is something that you wish you knew when you first started out?
1: I wish I knew that no meant... No for now. I wish I knew that early on. Just becoming an adult and entering into professional settings, I wish I knew career-wise especially that someone declines your pitch or, or says you have a horrible idea. They're not saying no. They're saying no for now. No according to me. What I'm actually truly saying in parentheses and the silent part is no according to me on this day in the mood I'm in and in the way you asked and no does not mean it's over no does not mean it's a no-go no means it's not gonna happen at this very moment but I wish I knew earlier that that's what that meant because I think I thought as a young person still building confidence as an old person still building confidence, but I think I thought early on that no meant it's over. Like no was a final answer. I mean, I have come to learn over the years that there is always an opportunity to have something looked at a second time or overturned or second guessed, or I wish I had known earlier that rejection and the word no is only no right now. It's never a permanent no. And the people telling you no, they still have to clear the no that they gave you with some bigger person above them.
0: What advice would you give to someone who wanted to do what you do?
1: Back to your theme of season two, I think confidence. You have to somehow find as much authentic confidence as possible. Whether you dig deep down and find it or whether you learn ways to to gain confidence, whatever you have to do to get confidence, do it because you're gonna need it. Just. Figuring out a way to be tough and and, uh, realizing that even though we've entered a period in our time, here we are 20 years later again, we've maybe entered a period where it is okay to cry. It is okay to cry publicly. It is okay to have a meltdown and call a support line and take a Xanax and uh, go out by a waterfall and do yoga and take off for mental health week. You don't have to. If you need to, go. If you don't need to, don't. So I would say confidence wherever you can find it, and tough. You've got to be tough.
0: And then what is the best compliment that you've ever received, and if you can tell us who gave it to you, if not?
1: Faith Hill, yeah, Faith Hill gave me the best compliment. Now, it's, it's not the best compliment, it's the most memorable compliment, because remember, those things that happen when you're a kid, those, those, the, the praise you receive early on, your first big compliment, um, that's what you remember. I am a big fan of music. In fact, I just bought $40 worth of CDs. CDs. This is how much we're going back 20 years. I'm like so living in the past. I just bought like $40 worth of used CDs on a used CD website. I'm going crazy. Um, Faith Hill. I'm a big fan of music i'm a big fan of country music you know i grew up in the 90s so it was all about the reba winona faith martina all the all the women out there so i'm a big country music fan i went to a concert when i was a kid and i went up to faith hill (laughs) of course i did Hey, Faith, it's me, Joseph Finity. I said, Faith, Faith, can I have your autograph? And two things happened that day. Three, I got her autograph. (laughs) Two two bigger things happened that day that I still have. I lost the autograph. But one, something very strange happened. Faith Hill said to me and the, I guess, hundreds of other people running up to her to get an autograph. She says, I am so sorry, you guys. I'm running late. I'm supposed to be on the stage. And I don't have time to sign autographs. I can only sign one. I was, I don't know, seven or eight years old, no more than nine. I was a little kid, and I had very, at the time, I had freckles and I had very pale skin. I still sort of do, but I had very pale white skin. I had very dark, 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 dark brown hair, almost black. I had very dark hair, very pale skin, very blue eyes, very light eyes. And so as, well, you know what happened next? She signed my autograph. I was the one and only. See, this is where confidence comes from, Faith Hill telling you. As she signed, she glanced over at me and she said, "'Darling, you've got the most beautiful eyes.'" So to this day, and this was, see, we'll talk about a whole bunch of years ago. This was, to this day, I think even recently on Twitter or something I had on my bio, I said, Faith Hill thinks I had pretty eyes. So um, goes to show that you complimenting a stranger, I'm fairly certain Faith doesn't remember me, but that doesn't matter because it's like these things you take with you. So if you want to know where my confidence comes from, it's probably from being a kid when Faith Hill randomly said, oh yeah. Here, you're the one and only autograph I can sign, and you've got beautiful eyes. I mean, you can live on that for another few decades. (laughs) But in all seriousness, the biggest compliments are like when someone, have a good friend, she and I worked at a TV station together several years ago. And what she said to me one time, you know, you've got a great ability. You've got a great ability to connect things that seem to others irrelevant or that they don't have a connection And you can connect it and she was talking at the time about a story we were working on and i was able to find um a way to produce this story where we could connect all of these dots that were very easy for me to connect but she reminded me that others didn't see it that way and it took me to connect those dots or to raise those voices, or to produce that film, or whatever. Compliments like that, you know, when someone compliments you, I mean, look, it it feels great when someone says, oh, you've got nice eyes, or you look pretty today, you look cute, aren't you handsome? And when you get a physical compliment like that, that's that's really fun, you know? It's like, oh, good, right? When someone says, oh, Tommy, have you been working out? Okay, great. But those don't last, you don't remember those, you just don't, unless it's Faith Hill telling you you have pretty eyes. But the ones that do last, like what my colleague and friend told me about, you can connect the dots better than anyone else I've ever met. Compliments like that, right? Compliments when it's about your character or your ability. Those are the ones that that mean the most to me. But the most memorable is Faith Hill telling me I have pretty eyes. I mean, hello, I've said it like five times just in this podcast. Clearly, it's going to be memorable now.
0: <laughs> and can you just remind us where to find you online and then the project and
1: so you can always find me at josephfinity.com and for those of you just listening and not looking at any documentation or whatever you call that <laughs> what do you call it a podcast it's not documentation the liner notes if you don't <laughs> if you don't have a visual yeah if you don't have something in your hand um it's f-e-n-i-t-y joseph dot at finity on most social media as we're recording this we're reaching the 20-year marker of the events of September 11, 2001. And so if you go to 911tapes.org, 911tapes.org, if you go there, if that's where you're going to find the project, I invite you guys to not only go listen and hear the amazing resilience of these kids' blocks from the Twin Towers, not just to be impressed and inspired by their resilience, but listen closely to what they say and share it with someone. The goal with this, Tommy, as I was telling you earlier, the beginning of this original project all those years ago was to give the youth of America, the youth of New York City, give the kids, the young people, a voice. And here we are two decades later, and I'm hoping that the time I took digging in a hot storage unit to find these tapes from 2002 and yes they were tapes to to bring these to light and to remaster and digitally enhance and truly make them mb3 or whatever format like truly bring them online these these voices have not seen the light of day I just hope people go to josephfinity.com and follow all the stuff I've done before this and we will do after this but right here and right now for those of you listening to the podcast as a new podcast with tommy i just hope you guys go to 911tapes.org listen to my stuyvesant tapes be inspired by the brilliant young people that make up that generation and and the next
0: yes and i hope that people will get some healing from it too i mean 20 years later i'm sure some people are still healing from all of that right in some way right it, we, it's some those are things that those of us that weren't directly affected by it might not understand, but it's different when someone passes away of old age, and when someone's taken from you. I want to thank you for being the first guest of the second season.
1: Yay. <laughs> yeah, the very first. <laughs> it's an honor. It's an honor. I'm so I'm just surprised you were renewed for a second season. I mean, Prelude to Positivity yeah. is good, but I just a whole new season. Well, like,
0: sketchy. I had to do a lot of negotiations with the producer. Myself, <laughs> you know. I produced it. But I had to do a lot of negotiations with him because it was rough. It was touch and go there. He didn't really want to go I for bet.
1: It. I know. I know. He called me for a reference. I just hope in this second season, I'll just say one more thing if we're still on. I just want to say that I hope in the second season you will reveal to people the party. You and Joe Jonas both left at the same time. And I hope you reveal to everyone a little bit Or just some hints as to what Joe Jonas was referencing when he leaned over to you and said, oh, this party isn't your thing either, huh? (laughs) Oh, that is a good story. But other than that, I wish you a great second season. But I think that'll be a great teaser to keep people on to the last episode of the season.
0: Thank you for bringing this project to light because I think it was something that needed to be done. And it didn't have to be done. You could have just said, no, I'm not going to go through all this work. But important that it is being done.
1: Yes, And let me know what you think of it and share it with everyone you know 911tapes.org Let those voices be heard Thank you Tommy I always have fun with you. Thank you Tommy
0: everyone, thank you for being for listening and hopefully you'll enjoy future episodes as well as this one. Thank you so much good night or good morning wherever you are. <laughs>